0: Hi and welcome to Conscious Working, the podcast. I'm Gret Batfleur, your host and founder of Conscious Working. Having suffered burnout at the height of my career, I prioritized me. I focused on my health and well-being, and emerged more resilient and with greater clarity. And I had a deep knowing that businesses need to do better. And we're now on a mission to. Consciously change one company at a time. We do this through our leadership program, where we partner with C suite and exec teams to educate them on the eight habits of a conscious leader. We do this through Tribe, our holistic well being membership, to empower leaders and busy professionals to move from burnout to balance to brilliance. And we do this by sharing stories on this podcast stories from conscious leaders and conscious experts who are doing things differently and succeeding. I am so excited to share all of this with you, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Conscious Leaders. Today, I am joined by Andy Holmes. This man needs almost no introduction. He is a pioneer in the well-being space and one of the early thinkers on how well-being can impact performance. Uh, so Andy was originally a hockey player, and he has a degree in physiology. He worked at GlaxoSmithKline, then at Reckitt and now he is at Corn Ferry in a new role, client partner For well-being and high performance. And he really is a visionary. He and I had such a good conversation. I always get so excited to speak to Andy to hear what he's up to, but also his insight, his knowledge, and how this is more than just well-being. This is about a way of living. And yes, it's important for businesses to think about this and to think about human capacity, but also it's up to each of us as individuals to really get to know ourselves and be aware of what our bodies need in order to perform at our best, whether that's in a business or in your day-to-day life. So we talk about so much. We talk about his journey to where he is now. We talk about, um, what leadership means, what good leadership looks like. Talk about, um, what well-being looks like twenty years ago in comparison to what it looks like now, and how um, well-being has evolved. We talk about some of his non-negotiables. We talk about human PNL, something that Corn uh, Ferry and Andy are seriously developing. Something super interesting. Can't wait to see more on this. We talk about so much definitely one that you should listen to. And without further ado, let's head on over to this episode. So Andy, thank you for joining us for Conscious Leaders. Um, Let's start off with your story. How did you get to where you are today? Wow,
1: Um, that's a big question, but I I feel like you're going to need a short answer. So um, the easiest way to kind of start and top and tail is um, this sort of just innate kind of curiosity and fascination with human beings, who we are as people. Um, I was born in the north of England. Um, from a very early age, I played ice hockey randomly. So, uh, yeah, I played that for 20 years, but was very fortunate to always be playing kind of a few age levels above um, above, above where I should be. And what that means is you're always thrown into the mix with older people, different networks, um, different circles of influence, different agendas, um, but always being required to perform a couple of levels above where you naturally are. Um, and so for me, that kind of progressed into uh, my degree, which was physiology, biomechanics, bit of psychology. Um, and then I started to work with uh, with GSK. So I did 12 years with GSK, um, all the way up through the kind of commercial organization, then into Racket, um, into you know more of a sort of a consumer-orientated kind of FMCG sort of arena. Um, but that theme of innate kind of human curiosity, what drives our, our capacity, our consistency, our performance, our behavior – our decision making has always kind of sat with me. And I think that's, you know, I I always have this sort of hashtag around being a lens changer, but my whole thing is about reframing what we think we see and understanding what's behind it. And yeah, that's that's where it's come from.
0: Amazing. And for those that don't know GSK, Glaxo Smith yeah, and yeah. you had one other one other term in there that I'm uh, so, so I got.
1: So I worked in consumer and then uh so consumer yeah. healthcare. Um, okay. And then Pharma Commercial, which is sort of the, I suppose, the, the hybrid arm of the GSK Pharma business. Got it. Uh, and then obviously on racket. it
0: And then with well-being, was there like a pivotal moment that took place that you were like, actually, I'm really now going to go into the well-being space?
1: Yeah, it was, I think for me, it was probably, um, you know, it always been there, you know, through my studies. And, um, you know, I've, I I found this sort of the real science and the data side of things incredibly fascinating. Um, but the thing for me was always around kind of capacity and consistency. Um, so you can learn all of these things. You hear about diets and exercise regimes and everything else, and and everyone goes full in and then fails. Um, and it, it just kind of got me to wonder: well, why do we fail, and what is missing around that sort of consistency element? Because consistency is about trust. And trust is about what unlocks everything else that makes us wonderful about human beings. So, so that was part of it. But then the other bit was um, when I joined Wreckit, I spent about nine years traveling 70% of the year. So I was on long-haul flights. Um, it was a real balance between kind of personal life and work life. Um, and I saw people around me making lots of the wrong decisions around sort of well-being, around nutrition, around sleep, around alcohol, that kind of stuff. And, and the big thing for me was, you know, I remember I'd be sitting in a hotel lobby eating sushi after having done um, a moderate workout to try and rebalance myself from jet lag. And I'd be sat there with other people, execs, whoever, who were plowing into, you know, bottles of wine and big steak dinners and all the rest of it. And you could see the sort of the lethargy, you know, that, that was kind of creeping in. You know, there, there was this inherent kind of loss of sharpness, of, of consistency, of consciousness that, uh, that for me there. And as you travel, your curiosity is just stimulated and sparked every single day, every moment. Um, So I just found myself asking a lot of questions about why, and it it just led me to dig deeper and deeper into this space.
0: I love that question, why? Like we should all actually use that and not be embarrassed at all. I mean, I grew up, I think, not not thinking I was allowed to always question things, and so. But actually, we have to question things because actually we can grow so much just by simply putting that question out there. And why are we doing it this way? A hundred
1: percent. I mean, you know, I, I always I sort of use the phrase the why behind the what. Um, and, you know, I know we're going to go back to sort of bit of the journey. But when you look at what organizations are doing in the well-being space, it's reacting to the what. It's reacting to a number on an engagement survey without understanding the sentiment as to why that number matters or why it means something. Um, You know, so this question will crop up as we go through this uh, this chart as well.
0: Yeah. So do you take the status quo for granted and think we just have to do it that way just because? Yeah. Yeah. Um, We are going to get back to measurement because I think that is important to touch on. But um, you have been in the space for a long time. What did well-being actually look like when you were first starting out? in comparison to what it looks like now. It's much more on the agenda now, but I'm sure you know, when you were first starting out at GSK and then into Reckitt, it was sort of open space.
1: Yeah, it, it was open space. And I think in some ways it was more organic. Um, I'm gonna say something which might be a little bit provocative, but hey, why not? Um, I think back then the people who were doing it were, it was more organic, it was more authentic. And, and I think it was done for the right reasons. I think as as the space has accelerated and shifted, it's become more commoditized and commercialized and packaged. Um, And what I see, whether it's with startups or tech platforms or, or well-being advisors or mental health or whatever else, a lot of it starts with the really sort of, you know, real positive intent to impact people's lives. And I use those words, impact people's lives. But what I see in the well-being space now is a lot of measurement of output measurement of output without really considering what's the impact that it's having what's the the sustainability what's the traction that it's having how is it transforming the way that people experience and feel so i think you know it's changed in some ways in that the you know it's become a bigger voice it's become more well known it's become more accepted um and people are leaning into it and investing which is great um i think for me we've lost some of the um some of the I, i suppose the authenticity and the intent of, of what we're trying to effect, um, and I think that for me is sad, but it also represents an incredible opportunity to do things the right way.
0: That um, makes perfect sense because actually, we speak a lot to a lot of our clients, and we can tell or potential clients, and you know the ones that are actually wanting to implement something because they truly care mm. about their employees, truly want to make a difference, truly want to have an impact, yeah. and ultimately, yes, they they know that that will have a bigger impact on. The business's bottom line, but we can also tell when it's just meant to. Oh, we should be doing the. Let's tick the box.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, I, I absolutely. And I think um, you know, data is fantastic, but data without real insight is is kind of dangerous. Um, yeah, you know, there's one of the things that makes me makes me um, sad about the space is that there's a lot of money, there's a lot of investment, a lot of lift, and really good intentioned people doing a lot of work to try and move the space forwards um and i think we really do need to reframe things to make that good intent and the good effort worthwhile you know the number of well-being practitioners or especially well-being leads inside organizations that i speak to who just look so deflated you know energized but deflated and dismayed about the fact that they're trying so hard but making so little progress and i think you know we, we can all lean in and hopefully this this conversation can help to reframe some of that
0: well, let's actually dig into that now. So what is some you are you like data and data is important measurement is important to yeah. to shift people's mindset. What what's key to look at and how can we how can leaders start thinking about well-being in a different way?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, quite often we approach the well-being space as a problem that we need to solve. Um I always believe that before you try and p- solve a problem, you should experience it first. Um, you know, so I think as as leaders, as organisations, they'll typically see you know a metric that we need to react to. You know, whether it's a red flag, burnout, um, you know, mental health, whatever it might be. Um, but unless you've experienced it or walked in the shoes or really sort of spent time with someone in that space, we shouldn't really be seeking to try and fix things. You know, I've I've been through that. I've tried to be a fixer in the past, and it's never really gone particularly well. I'll be honest. Um, can you
0: give, before you continue, could you give one example of when you tried to be a fixer, just so people can understand? I mean,
1: I, I, I suppose I'm sort of, um, relationships is a great example. You know, it, we, we all like to help people. And sometimes we try and fix the problem without giving them the help they need for them to fix it. Um, you know, so so I guess that's a real life way of, of of experiencing it. But one of the things is that, you know, we, we are, we see a problem. um And we think, well, you know, for example, anything in well-being pretty much we could look at, whether it's sleep, nutrition, whatever else. And we say, well, the reason people aren't doing it is because they don't know what to do. Um, If you look anywhere, if you were to type well-being, if you just speak to your smart speaker, if you speak to anyone in the street and say sleep, 90% of people know how much sleep you should have, what that looks like. Same with nutrition, same with diet, you know, same same with movement, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm a firm believer that it's not because people don't know what they should be doing. It's because the connected experience of what I feel day to day and what I need to shift to day to day, I haven't yet made those links. So, you know, if, if you're a senior leader or if I was speaking to a senior leader around well-being, I wouldn't be talking about the data. You know, if I was talking to you, Greg, I would say, right, Greg, talk to me about your personal data. Not the stuff you measure, not the stuff you take off a watch or whatever, but talk to me about your day, talk to me about your energy, talk to me about how your mood changes as you go through the day. And what impact does that have on the way you feel, on your productivity, and where you end up at the end of the day? Because that is the most acute understanding and insight around well-being you will have. Not the data, not third-party stuff, but you yourself. And we we have to make those connections. Um, and from my experience, where you can unlock leaders so that they they open up and embrace their own experiences without wanting to impart solutions that have worked for them on others, but it, it gives them an intimacy to the problem. At which we're trying to we're trying to address.
0: Yeah, the problem is I think that some people are so not connected to actually how they're feeling. They're just on the go, go, go bus. Yeah, and it's not stopping at all. And so actually, yeah. I think that first, like creating that awareness, allowing people to understand they actually do need to take a step back, pause, and actually, it could be sixty seconds of just trying to tap in. How am I feeling? Actually, feeling right now.
1: Yeah, and 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 like you say, the go, go, go bus. Um, you know a lot of people will will you hear people say things like oh i thrive on a dynamic fast-paced environment you know i'm always busy and i love the buzz of it and people will tell you they're thriving because that's their executive brain narrating the world back to them it's framing a positive lens on this hectic craziness that you operate in but when you actually look at what they're doing they're just fizzing they're fizzing on high blood sugar high adrenaline cortisol And that's not sustainable. It doesn't drive self-awareness. It doesn't drive balance. It's not sustainable. It's not good for anyone else, let alone yourself. But we tell ourselves it is. You know, busyness has become the new business. And that's a real risk when you start to try and look into these things where people see a big number or a big drop in figures and that we have to drive and fix it. Um, You know, so sometimes it is. It's back to taking a step back. What's the why behind the what? So, for example, if you see data around burnout, The reaction is our workload's too high, pressure's too much, we need to back off. That's not necessarily what people are saying. The why behind the what might lie in the sentiment, in that I'm happy to work 10 hours a day, but I want to be doing something that I feel I have equity in, that I I have agency over, that I'm passionate about, and that I'm given a little bit of freedom to put my spin on it. You know, that can change things radically. I mean, you and your spacecraft, I can see and feel the passion and the love for what you do. And I'm sure that you don't spend every day working three hours. You know, I'm sure that you do a lot more than that. But because of how you do it and the way you feel about it, it's sustainable and it's balanced.
0: It's so interesting because obviously I came from a corporate setting and I had that, I'm going to say it was nine to six. It was way more than nine to six because I was definitely busy all the time. But Mm. creating my own business, I am so much more effective now but my work is more spread out, but I'm doing things and interspersing with things that I really enjoy. And that, and and I'm also working really hard. The moments I need to work really hard are really connected to the people that I need to give my time to. Yeah, And that means that I'm much more fulfilled and happier.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think I wouldn't be surprised there are people listening to this that might say, Oh, well, great. Like, you know, that's okay for you. You know, you run your own business, et cetera, et cetera. But, the reality is, and one of the big challenges, the tension points I see, in uh, certainly in corporate organizations, is that there's a, there's a narrative where the individual feels it's the corporate's responsibility to help them out. And the corporate feels it's the individual's responsibility to kind of step up and fix things. And, and whilst we're in that kind of, you know, whilst we're in that sort of state of tension, that status quo, nothing's going to move forwards. You know, if I was honest, what I would say is that I think in a lot of corporates, there are a lot of senior leaders who haven't had the feedback that would enable them to act and shift and help and change. But at the same time, there are a lot of individuals who haven't given that feedback. Now that may be a state's quo. It might be psychological safety. It might be tension. It might be all sorts of things, but at the moment we're not digging into why that's not happening. We're just working on the fact that it isn't happening and we've got some data, which we have to fix. Yeah. And, I and think that's part of the problem.
0: Yeah. And it sounds like, it's actually everyone saying it's someone else's fault rather than actually it's a meeting of the middle and we'll get to this place by having it top down but also grassroots and 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 hearing both sides
1: no it's 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 absolutely true and i think the 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 challenging but unfortunate maybe confronting thing is that like you have like i have at some points you do need to take some decisions for yourselves you need to make some decisions that are about what am i prepared to do and not prepared to do how do i want to feel and how do i not want to feel and, you know, this isn't about me being someone who's very senior, being able to say, oh, well, I can do all of these things. I've made these major made these decisions all the way through my career. And yeah, it may have limited my career in some ways. But I look at it and I say, well, but my career trajectory has been one that I look on with with, um, you know, with, with sort of good, positive feelings, with good emotions, with incredible experiences, with with real people, but lived through an authentic intent. And I think now it bubbles to the surface. So sometimes you've got to go, you know, change the way that you get to where you want to get to um, rather than have the immediacy of, you know, attainment and achievement um, yeah. along the way.
0: No, I love that you've just said that because we have this idea that success is a certain way. You get to, you you know, strive to a certain level, a certain title, or you have a certain amount of money, income that's coming in. But actually, we can be much more intentional about where we want to go and then be more fulfilled and what works for you is not necessarily what works for me or what yeah. i want and that's okay and, we and, can and all I be different you know
1: that that's what we've seen during you know during the pandemic and certainly post-pandemic we've seen people reevaluate the you know their values their priorities their aspirations in life um i think the challenge with where we're at at the moment certainly from well-being perspective is that at the same time organizations have orientated themselves to be much more purpose-driven there's been this huge communication sur- uh, surge around being purposeful and around standing for the greater good and, you know, solving the world's problems. But if I'm still coming to work and doing the same things I was as two years ago, all right, and maybe virtual, then there's a gap between expectation and experience. Um, and I think at the moment, we're sort of stuck blaming each other for that. And at some points, you know, I, I, I it, it comes down to some really simple things. You know, if you were to look at your day, and I guess this is a question I'd throw out to your listeners do you start your day looking at your emails and your meetings? Or do you start your day by looking at who do I want to to end up the day feeling like? um, And what do the phases of my day look like? So simple, simple way to look at that is, you know, I can either look at my to do list on my emails, which means let's be honest, the first half hour of your day is not going to be a lot of fun. You know, you don't get loads of good news stories on your email, let's be honest. But if you were to look at your day and say, right, who do I want to be at the end of the day? Am I reflective? Am I positive? Am I fulfilled? Am I satisfied? Am I proud? Am I insightful? Am I curious? Am I calm? Am I balanced? And then you work back through your day and you say, right, what are the phases to my day? And how do the phases to my day take me towards that end point? So naturally, if I want to be calm and reflective at the end of the day, I don't want to be high intensity and wired in my last session. So then how do I tone that down? Do I have a conversation with Gret, who just kind of brings me back down to earth a little bit? But what does that rhythm look like? So I think there's some really basic things that people can do, which can help them to build insight, not just to themselves, but what does their organization need to start to shift and feel in terms of well-being?
0: Um, it's Again, it goes back to that idea of being intentional. You said it about your choices in your career, but also just being intentional in your day. Yeah. And I, exactly. I actually start my day when I teach yoga, for example, I always have people in the beginning set an intention. It sounds a little bit, like, I think some people get a little bit thrown off because they don't know what they're supposed to think in that moment. So I might give some ideas. But it's the same your day. How do you want to live out your day? Yeah. And then ending the day and giving yourself a little bit of time to reflect back on the day. And did you actually live it out in that in that way? So you're yeah. looking at both using both ends of the day to then um, set it up and reflect back.
1: Yeah, 100 percent. I mean, you know, I, I went through the same thing. And if we've got time for a really quick story, um, you know. couple of years ago, you know, in the pandemic, I was finding, you know, I was back to back to back on meetings. Um, I'd wake up in the morning, we've got two young kids who are two and five now. But, you know, back then, we had a newborn, we had a three year old. And, you know, I felt honestly, I felt resentful in some ways that, well, I've got to get up, I've got a job, I've got to get stuff done. And I'm having to do this with the kids and my little wants to play Lego. And I was finding everything, um, you know, sort of a conflict, everything was added pressure and added responsibility. And that that felt tough. Um, and I worked with somebody who said, right, let's repackage it. You know, let's look at what that feels like. So then it became, well, I'm going to get up in the morning. I'm going to do a stretch with my three year old, which means my wife gets time with our newborn in a nice, quiet space. I'm doing stretching with three year old. He's copying me, which is great fun. It's hilarious watching a three year old, you know, re- you know, really undermine you in terms of the flexibility stakes. Um, but it made it fun. And then I'd make breakfast with him. He'd asked me some really curious questions, which would make me think. He asked me a question one day, you know, Dad, what's the difference between a, a rocket and a spaceship? I thought, what what is the difference? And I thought, well, is a rocket the thing that gets you and a spaceship is something you float around in or what? But even silly things like that, it completely changed the tone to the start of my day. And it changed the balance of my emotions and what I set up my day to start off with. What it also made me conscious of was who do I want to end the day as? I don't want to be wired when he's still got curious questions and he wants to tell me about his day. So what does that look like? So there are ways that, you know, you can repackage your day, but in really small ways. So it might be people say, well, I want to go to the gym five days a week. That's probably not going to happen consistently. And it's a lot of pressure to put on yourself. But how do you break down the components of going to the gym? Components of going to the gym is change your environment, interact with other people, do some movement of some description and take a break from work. Okay, you can build those four things into your day. It might be a walk and talk. It might be go and make a couple with your partner. It might be, um, you know, it might be just gaze out the window for 30 seconds and consider one question. There are all sorts of ways we can break this down and integrate them into our day. It doesn't have to be the big well-being commitment or a New Year's resolution that changes your world.
0: Okay, so you've now left It and you're now in a new role. I shouldn't say new because you've been there a few months, but... It's still, I guess, still the first year. So it is now. Um, can you tell us a little bit about Corn Ferry and also what you're specifically doing there?
1: Yeah, yeah, of course. So it was, you know, I'll be honest, it was it was a difficult decision to to kind of leave Rekka. I've been there 13 years and had some incredible experiences. But, you know, I think we, we got to a point where, you know, I had aspirations and a direction that I really wanted to pursue. And as a business, you know, they were sort of deep in transformation. And, you know, the, the two didn't necessarily marry up at that point. Um, so I did my own thing. I, I did c for human which was com- creating the capacity for human um, for a little while. And that was really about, you know, how do we start to re- reframe and reimagine well-being and human capacity? Um, how do we reframe the way that we show up and recontextualize well-being? Um, I started having some conversations with uh, Leslie, who is now the president of consulting at uh, Corn Ferry. Um, and she's a phenomenal leader, um, Australian, very, very people centric. And it really inspired me. You know, it made me think, you know, if I really want to do what I want to do, which is impact organizations at scale, then, you know, Corn Ferry is, you know, an incredibly good option. The thing for me, which was holding me back a little bit was will I have the freedom, the autonomy, the ability to innovate and and connect and collaborate? Because that really matters to me. It's what sparks my curiosity and keeps things moving forwards. Um, And so, you know, Leslie kind of, you know, re-aid my fears around that. But the other thing she did was she said, OK, so everything works. Is there anything else you need from us? And at that point, I said, well, I'd love to have the summer with my family um, because, you know, it's my boy's last, last summer before he goes to school. And she said, you know, what? I did that before I started. You tell me the date you want to start. And that for me was it was literally a stake in the sand that said we are in this and we're living it. And, and that made that made a huge difference to me.
0: I just got the chills as you yeah. said that because that really is putting your foot where your mouth is, putting whatever that statement is. Money where your mouth is. Money where your <laughs> mouth... Putting your
1: foot where your mouth is is <laughs> Yeah, it's different.
0: That is the different one. Foot in your mouth is when you make a mistake. Yeah, which yeah, I... Make a which back, I just yeah. did and I own up to it because I'm okay making a mistake. We've got to
1: keep that in though, right? <laughs>
0: We will keep that in. That's for all of you. Gret put her foot in her mouth. But they, Corn Ferry, put their money where their mouth is. Yeah,
1: No, it's you know, for for me, it's sort of what it did for me was it completely changed the way that I felt about entering the organization. I felt like I was entering on my terms with full support. Um, And the other thing was, I said, you know, I don't want to come in and conform and, you know, excuse the language. But she said, I want you to come in and shake some shit up. And, and that for me was like, that's the words that I needed to hear. That's, that's what I do. I love to be provocative. I love to challenge and reframe. And if I can't do that, I'm going to stagnate and my curiosity and my, my drive won't come through. So that was, that was big for me. Um, the other thing is that I don't want to be working in a space where well being is purely about reacting to the acute symptoms of broken organizational sort of systems. Um, I want to be working in a space where we are pioneering and innovating around how do we design through well-being, how do we design high-performance, high-trust, innovative ecosystems of the future. And when I say ecosystems, that's because they're self-dispects, self, uh, self um, self They're interdependent. Um, it's 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 something that is organic. It's not something that we react to or intervene with. It's something that we build. We you know we invest in and we support. Um, and that for me has been really powerful. You know, I have this fundamental belief that, you know, we as human beings can do more than we'd ever anticipated by being more than we'd ever appreciated. You know, too often, the first bit is what the organisation wants is do more. The second bit is what the person wants, which is appreciate me for being more, for being human. If we can find that sweet spot, then that's sustainability, it's performance, it's inclusion, it's, it's all of the stuff that's going to drive us towards future success.
0: So how are you going to do that?
1: I've got no idea. <laughs> um no so it's um it's been a fascinating journey and you know, I had a blueprint from from C4 Human uh, that uh, you know that I spoke to spoke to Cornfrey about and and came in with the view of doing. And as I've mixed with these incredible minds at Cornfrey you know we we've, we've got Harvard professors we've got researchers we've got behavioral specialists we've got org- cultural transformation specialists all this great stuff. But where I got to realizing is that we've got this incredible bank of stuff and most organizations are similar well not similar but most organizations focus is similar which works on cognition and behavior but the one thing we don't work on is is our biological makeup our moods our emotions so that that almost connection that organic bit of what is it to be a human being and then how do we leverage the science that we have to elevate that um and that for me was the uh, was the real sort of sweet spot with corn ferry so what we're looking at is what is the what is the, the sort of the mix of Human capacity, of human-centered leadership, and of organisational purpose and cadence, and it's not necessarily working on those individual things. It's it's the intersects that that creates. It's the intersects in terms of engagement and retention and sustainability of people. You know, almost like as a renewable fuel source. It's about looking at when we're in that space, how does that drive DNI and and equity and inclusion and belonging? It's then how does that drive affinity and loyalty and passion for the purpose of the organisation? But how does the organisation reciprocate that? by putting a cadence in place that is sustainable that's balanced that allows people to recycle and oscillate in terms of energy engagement and focus so for me there's there's a there's a wonderful mix of things that are coming together um which we we're, we're looking to to reimagine as essentially as a human PL. so rather than just looking at the commercials of an organization how do you quantify the metrics not just around well-being but around performance engagement di innovation attention uh, uh, attrition retention All of the stuff that goes into the mix, how do we reframe that so that it's one picture, a simple picture? Not millions of different insights that may or may not help, but a simple picture that allows you to build and sustain an ecosystem that's good for people and better for business.
0: And you've got the data, obviously. And so then with the data, you're able to actually put this together.
1: Yeah. So, so, I mean, you know, Corn Fairy has 87 million or so uh, behavioral profiles, um, you know, in terms of the the assessments and things that have been done, which gives an incredible bank of data to allow us to look at trends, themes, clusters, traits, but also then start to look at, well, what are the human capacity components, the the biological, biological components that we know from human science contribute towards those styles and themes. So it allows us to almost look at it. How does well-being become a diagnostic? But how does it become a design tool as well? And that for me is the fascinating place for the workplace of the future.
0: So, so with the, the data that you have, is it done yearly so you can actually start to see trends over the years and how things have adjusted? Or is it sort of a set line of this is the baseline and then we're going to we're start starting to build from that baseline?
1: No, so I mean, I think you know when when you look at the uh, the the assessment data that we have, and obviously it's it's all sort of aggregated. We can't look at any sort of individuals, but in terms of trends and traits and themes and styles, we can look at that, and we can look at how that's evolved over time. You know, in terms of how successful leadership traits, themes, styles have evolved over that time, how they make up different types of cultures, different types of organisations with different performance profiles. Um, the fascinating bit now is then how do we start to correlate that with the real human-centric data? Um, some of it would be well-being data, so, you know, not so much the traditional, you know, attrition, sickness, burnout, you know, that sort of stuff, but how do we tap into Microsoft analytics? How do we look at things like heart rate variability? How do we start to look at some of the, you know, the, the, te- the new technologies that are emerging? And look at in the moment um, analytics that allow us to start to say, well, how could we inform and build self- self-awareness and inherent authenticity, which drives trust? How do we do that in a way that we use tech to drive people towards people? So there's some really fan- fascinating sort of ways that we can use well-being to fuel the future, almost reconnect people to themselves rather than driving away from each other
0: towards technology. Amazing. Um- you mentioned culture. I'm interested in how businesses and teams can really start to create a culture of well-being.
1: Yeah. So so I think, I mean, I talk about it, you know, almost from the, what we've learned from COVID, you know, the, the sort of, you know, crises and pandemics through history have shown us that we can come up with some of the most incredible solutions. And some of those are wonderfully simple. Um, one of the, the, the sort of the things that holds organizations and teams back from making some of these shifts is that, we try and do it all at once. We try and mandate it. We try and make it formulaic. Um, and as soon as you get some people who don't move with it, it starts to stutter and then it loses momentum and it kind of it fails to succeed. Um, during COVID, what we do is we bubbled. So if you and I and four, four others were in a, a family or a team, we'd adopt a certain pattern of behavior, certain relationships, certain rules, which would be very simple, um, very basic, but it would be based on very human centric you know, things that mattered to us. So. I would say rather than organizations trying to do it top down, do it bottom up. Allow allow teams to organically set their own tones. As those teams set their own tones, they'll start to influence each other. They'll start to find, and this is how try, you know, tribes and everything else came together. We start to find organic ways that feel good for everyone to operate and, and interact together. And then they and as you get sort of consistency in those, you can you can formulate those into rules or themes or, or values or whatever they might be. But Allow them to be organic before you codify them rather than the other way around. Um, going back to what we said right at the start, the why behind the what, it's not what people are doing, it's how they feel about it. If something is codified, and you're told, Greg, this is how you're going to operate, you'll immediately feel constrained, you'll lose agency, you'll possibly doubt the level of trust or autonomy that you have. If someone was to say to you, right, within some broad boundaries, we want you and the four people around you to find a balance that works for you. We want to see what's the rhythm that works for you. Do a mini pilot between yourselves, share your experiences, talk about it, and then we'll bubble up those themes and then we'll bubble up and bubble up again. So for me, that's the way that we need to do it, but it requires a a level of dynamism and a level of of freedom to be created by organisations. At the moment, we're stuck in this tension where organisations are struggling for performance. One of the things that gives organisations Comfort, when they're struggling in performance, is to measure and measure and measure. Measuring is about control. Control is about reinforcing the things that you want to happen so it's predictable, so you reduce risk. So there is this sort of tension where we want control, but we need to give freedom at the same time. And, and you know, that's going to take a little bit of uh, a little bit of working.
0: Yeah. Um, it makes me think, like, what what are good leaders doing? So in your opinion, in your experience, even, what does good leadership look like?
1: So, so my my sort of the work I've done with sort of teams and high performing teams, there's a couple of things that really play on a consistent basis. So when you look at teams or leaders who are struggling versus those who are doing very well, um, trust is incredibly important, as are hope and optimism. Now, the thing is they're three emotions. They're not three, you know, operating models or processes or anything else. Now, trust tends to come from a point of feeling that. I have the resources I need to survive, but I trust that others will look after those resources with me. So that's the first piece. That's where human capacity comes in kind of bottom up. Um, the second piece is, is high equity, which is about belonging. So it's about everyone having skin in the game. It's about leaders giving other people the ability to kind of put their hand in and leave their chips in rather than you know the, the leader holding all, all the cards kind of thing. And the third thing is, um, is high optimism. Optimism is not about making everything tangible and anchored and firm. It's about allowing degrees of freedom. And and if you look at what people have missed during this sort of period of of sort of pandemic and post-pandemic, you know, trust in terms of are the people who are making the decisions about my life, the ones I'd like to be? Um, Equity. Do I have skin in the game? Am I valued? Am I a number? I'm hybrid. I'm distant. Am I still a whole person? And then optimism, you know, what does the future look like? The news is pretty crappy right now. So how can this leader, this person, give me that sense of optimism, of hope, of aspiration that I can believe in?
0: Um, for corporates that are just starting out on this journey, they're just considering well-being. Do you have any advice for them?
1: Yeah, mine would be um, don't focus on doing, focus on feeling um most organizations when they start out on well-being you know it's either driven from one of two things one is that it's data or a, a scenario or an event a burnout you know that, that that's catalyzed it the other is that you know they feel that they should be seen to be doing something because everyone else is um either of those two things you know probably are not the right reason um even if it's that something has happened yes you need to address the problem but you've got to understand why. With anything, you know, related to well-being, these things are very rarely acute. They're more often than not something that's been chronically happening that has been left for a period of time and it's become acute. So, you know, if you're reacting to the acute, you need to step back and look at the chronic and say, right, well, why has this happened? What's been happening under the radar that we haven't noticed that is maybe simpler to solve, um, less intrusive, less invasive, less intrusive, but probably more of value and more sustainable to go forwards with? Um, I would apply exactly the same thinking to organizations who are doing it because everyone else is doing it. You can do lots of stuff so you can shout about it. But the problem is, the more you shout about it, the higher the expectation, the less it lands, the lower the experience and the greater the gap you create. So for me, it's about doing less, but doing it for the right reasons. Um, one of the simplest things is, is, is daily experiences, daily energy flow, daily architecture, circadian rhythm, whatever you want to call it. Um, you and I have talked about it. It's something that everybody resonates with. It's not a step a It's not a challenge. It's not weight loss. It's not a fad diet. It's just day-to-day. It's how we live our lives. And if you ask people and start to explore what their day-to-days look like, their day-to-days will follow patterns. Their day will probably go wrong at the same point in time. They'll probably run out of energy at the same point in time. They'll probably feel lacking in confidence at the same point in time. If we can start to unpick that and change their day-to-day experience, it's not about high performance. It's not about, you know, solving burnout or mental health. It's about how do we just shift the day-to-day experience to be a little right of the middle rather than a little left of the middle on a more consistent basis.
0: Yeah, rather than having huge spikes, but 100%. then knowing that the big dip is going to come as well and rather having it sustainable over time.
1: I, I, absolutely. And it, it's it's not all about the numbers. You know, numbers are what gives an organization comfort that the money we're spending we get a return on. But If the return is just compliance, that doesn't mean anything. You know, look at the number of organizations that have mental health first aiders that are training managers who are already struggling to cope themselves to to, to look after other people. Yet the engagement levels with or the utilization rates on mental health first aiders is is, is incredibly low. Managers are citing burnout because they're being given more and more to do. So is compliance and and, and output really the thing that we should be looking for an ROI on? Or is impact the thing we should be looking for ROI on?
0: And can you talk a little bit about personalization?
1: Hmm. Um, so, so for me, I think there's personalization. You know, it, it's one of the themes that we've become very used to in the world that we live in. Everybody is used to personalization. Um, the wonderful thing with some of these tech platforms is that they give everyone an opportunity to interact. The downside with them is that whilst they build themselves as being personal it's built on an algorithm, you know, it's built on questions that the designer or the, the developers decided probably will give them the best metrics to sell data to increase the value of their business. So personalization, I would talk about personal experiences rather than personal content. Um, so when you talk about personalization, you know this very well with the work that you do, you work very closely with the people you work with. You, you build an intimate understanding, you build a warmth, you understand, their experiences and their emotions of their well-being as opposed to just the content that they might like to access and that really really matters you know at corn ferry one of the things we look at is you know what drives behavior what motivates someone to behave in a certain way why do people react and behave in a certain way rather than just what is their behavior what's the metric um so you know for me when when we talk about personalization it has to be integratable it has to be relevant to me Um, And it has to be something that I can apply each day. Um, The danger is that most of these platforms and things are being sold to a decision maker without really being sold to the end user, if that makes sense. So whilst the metrics and while stepathons and everything else might look great to a corporate wanting to measure deliverables, um, does a stepathon really help me as an individual or might something else be more impactful for me in the way I feel?
0: Um, what's your feeling? You just mentioned um, the end user. What are your thoughts around actually having conversations with the employees about what they need?
1: Um, I, I'm i 100 percent for that. Um, I think the danger is that if you decide you're going to ask the employees for what they need, um, then you might get some answers that aren't necessarily the solution you've got access to provide. Um, but, you know, for me, there's an authenticity to that. You know, I think you're much better as an organization to say, hey, look, you know, we'd like to understand what you need and where we can shift, where we can flex. We can't provide everything, but we'd like to understand you. The danger is that what organizations do is they just look at the data and then procure something. Now, if you've been to any of these, I know you have because we met at one, but um, any of these kind of conferences and events and everything else, the, the metrics that are measured by the platforms are the metrics the platform measures, it's not necessarily the metrics that are right for your employees or right for the organization. You know, I keep going back to the fact that with the greatest respect, if a CEO goes to the city to present their financial results, the city doesn't care how many steps your people are doing. What they care about is what's the impact on your people? How do they feel? What is their engagement, openness, innovation? And how is that driving performance? What's the sustainability and believability factor of your business? Um, So sometimes the metrics aren't necessarily the ones that matter. It's the personal experiences that really help to shift.
0: Um, and then for the individual who wants to improve their well-being, do you have any tips that you can give them? Um,
1: I'd say less is more. You know, don't don't start by looking for solutions. Start by looking for your own data. So one of the simplest exercises you can do is literally get a piece of paper, draw a line on it. And just as you go through the day, just draw your energy levels. Now, that can be physical energy, it can be focus. It can be you know emotional energy, whatever it might be. But just draw that line. And then the next day, draw the line again do it for a week, do it for five days and just see how that line changes. It's probably going to do the same sorts of things, give or take at the same times of the day. Once you've done that, then start to look into, well, what does that mean for me? Um, two things. One might be um, you're doing the wrong things for you at the wrong time of day. Another side of things is that you may be doing something with the greatest intent at each time of the day, which is actually undermining you. So a great thing is, you know, some people will go out and try and smash a workout or do a you know big run or a workout at five o'clock in the morning because they hear that's what the world's best CEOs do. But the reality is for you and your profile, it might spike your cortisol. It might increase your, your tension, your anxiety. It might make you rushed for the rest of your day, for the morning when you've got your focus period. So understanding yourself is the first thing everyone should do. From there, then start to just try simple things, small changes. But small changes and understand how they impact you. Um, with well-being, a lot of people have one lever. A lot of people have, well, I'm going to sleep better or I'm going to hit the gym or I'm going to go on a diet. But all of these things work together. It's not as simple as just saying I'm going to pull one big one big string.
0: Um, and for you, what are some of your non-negotiables? How do you set yourself up for a? and I say success? Successful day, but in quotes. <laughs> Successful yeah. day, your version of success.
1: Um, my my version of success. So mine is very, very centered around people. Um, you know, I uh, it's funny, I was chatting with my wife um over the weekend and she sort of said, you know, who do you tap into during the day? Um and for me, I know the the different, I know how I need to show up each day. So the first thing I do is I'll look at the day ahead. And I'll say, right, who do I want to be at the end of the day? Normally that's orientated around who I need to be for the kids, when I need to be switched off. Um, but the second thing is what are the phases I need to go through during the day? So obviously, we're doing this call right now. I wanted to be calm and balanced. So I knew I needed to build a walk outside in the sun into my day, just before we had this conversation. And that allows me just to distill that, to just distill things down, separate things, you know, get a sense of calm in place so I can think clearly. Um But one of the things I'll do is I'll look at who do I need to interact with as I go through the day. I've got people in my network and it's not a huge network. You know, I know a lot of people, but the network I tap into is very small. And some of those people will be real ideators. Other people will be reflectors. Other people will just listen. And so I will I will work with those people as I go through the day and weave them into my day. I'll ping them a message in the morning or the day before and say, hey, can I connect with you at such and such a time? So for me, the the interso- interpersonal thing is really, really important. Um, typically, if I do that, I'll have different ways of connecting with them. So, you know, with someone, it might be a walk and talk with someone else. It might be a brainstorm, um, you know, but it, but it's about how I build those few things together. So environment, movement and people as I go through each day.
0: And I did love how that oh, the awareness is the starting point of everything, because that's actually where I start everything. I'm like, we've got to actually build in this awareness around our own being, whether that's yeah. physical, mental, emotional or spiritual. And dare I say the word spirit in like a business setting, but it is just really getting to terms with who you are and what you need. Yeah. Yeah. And we do not give ourselves that permission a lot of the time to do that
1: it's, it's what, one of the things that that really sort of hit me i had a, a situation a while back where um we just had our, our second kid um after a couple of miscarriages and stuff and we were having a tough time you know we were in lockdown hadn't seen parents all that sort of stuff and i broke my wrist bike and part of my bike failed and i you know i do a lot of biking but i broke it in six places so i was in hospital having an art, my wife's got two kids no one else to help all the rest of it and you know when when the when the you know, the schtuck hits the fan, things in life stop, you know, work stops, you deprioritize, you reorganize, this stuff happens. But for some reason, in normal day to day, we don't give ourselves permission to do that. We need to. It's not our organization's fault that we don't do it. If we don't do it, then we're not asking for permission, and they can't grant it. So this is where we almost come back to that, that full circle of what we were talking about before. Some of these decisions are asked to take. And that really is that that has to land. It's a message we need to take away.
0: Yeah, we have our agent. We have our own agency. And actually, we can choose to create a life that we want. And it's up to us to actually speak out and yeah. voice what we need. Yeah. Um, OK, final question. What are the three things that you want to accomplish in the next three years?
1: Whoa, that's a biggie. Um I think for me in the next three years, it's to reestablish a new balance. Um, so I'm, I'm going to be selfish. I think we have to start with ourselves. Um, you know, so, so for me, I've gone from a, an organization where I was you know with them for a long time. You have certain practices and rhythms and everything else. Um, I had three months off and that was wonderful, but I set a, I set a tone for myself, which was fantastic. I mean, it was one of the best three months I've ever had as an adult. Um, but Obviously, that's come under some pressure going back into an organization and learning lots of new stuff. So it's, it's really getting that balance kind of settled down um, for me. I, I want to make sure that I'm getting to the mountains, traveling a bit more, doing all that kind of good stuff that, you know, I know is important for my curiosity and my and my sense of self. Um, the second thing is that I, I want to reframe the way that I guess the world, but organizations view human beings and, and well-being. You know, for me, I think well-being is kind of being done to death. It's it's really being flogged. Um, I think we're going to see a lot of people drop drop by the wayside. You know, with the financial downturn and what's going on with tech and everything else. Um, you know, so I think that's going to be a real change. But I think it's also an opportunity to really reframe the way that people view and organisations view human capacity. Um, and the third thing for me is that I want to work with Corn Ferry and with preferred partners to completely redesign the future of human in corporate. Um, you know, I think, you know, you see what's happening with, you know, AI and chat and everything else. And the world is going to change beyond recognition over the next three years. I think the pressure on on people, on talent, on the roles that will still exist will be exponential. Um, and I think we have to design for that. Um, and I want to be at the forefront. You know, I believe there's huge opportunity, huge potential. I think we can, we can realize a very different, level of sustainability, of performance, but also of, of well-being and of equity. Um, and I want to be at the forefront of that, you know, designing and building it with the biggest companies on the planet.
0: I have no doubt that you'll accomplish all three of those things, knowing who you are and making sure that there's balance along the way. So I'm looking forward to watching you over the next three years and seeing how things evolve. Hey, don't just
1: watch. I'll be calling on you.
0: (laughs) Yes, please do. I'm always here. Um, But thank you so much for taking time out of your day. I know you're super busy, um, but this is such an important conversation. Everything you have to say is so valuable and needs to get out to the world. So I really appreciate you joining. It's
1: been awesome. And yeah, I just, yeah, thank you to you for what you do. And yeah, just the, the, the vibe and the energy and the, you know, the, sort of the insight that you bring. I think you, you've got a wonderful angle. And yeah, I, I hope we can do something in the future.
0: Thank you so much for tuning in. I'll see you in the next episode. And by the way, if you like what you heard, then hit subscribe to receive all the future episodes. Better yet, if you're feeling inspired by what you just heard, then leave a review letting me know who else you might want to hear from on Conscious Leaders. To learn more about the show, about Conscious Working, or Tribe, our membership, head over to our website, consciousworking.co. Yes, it's just C-O, so consciousworking.co. And for those of you that might be suffering burnout, we have a great free resource, the Beat Burnout Guide. It's a really simple assessment with tools for you to take action now. Check it out in the show notes so that you can access it immediately. See you in the next episode. Be here and be well.